I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do, but I I started learning what I didn't want to do. When I see a problem, I think of a solution and I want to go and build it and prove it. That's the best way of proving by just solving the problem. So whether you're an exec or an intern, when you're starting your own company, you will never be hundred percent sure. You just have to do it. You have to take that plunge, and like that's the only way to find out. Because at the end of the day, fundamentally we are the same, right? Like everyone's trying to build a safe and a happy future for their families, for themselves, and to be happy. And and that's who we are. And and that's how we try and kind of live and build the culture in the in the team as well. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is one more scoop. Here. We're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Honey Mittal is a co-founder and CEO of Locofy.ai, a low-code startup that converts your designs to production-ready code for apps. And web. Before Locofy, he was CPO at startups like Homage, Finaxel, and WeGo. Hi, honey. Nice to speak with you today. Hi, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thank you for joining us. So nice to speak with you. After a while, it's been a lot of changes for you guys at Locofy. I remember when your product launch came out, and I thought I felt that that was really exciting. So I'm sure there is a lot of exciting things for you to share today as well from your journey so far. Yeah, it's it almost feels like we haven't talked for. Couple of years, I keep thinking about you starting, uh, you know, back scoop at the same time as us. Pretty much, our journeys started at uh, roughly the same time, and uh, I'm glad to be on on this podcast today and happy to share. Yeah, things have changed <laughs> drastically, as is the case uh, with many startups, and I'm I, I think we're very grateful to be in this position, given that it's not the easiest time for startups and from uh, from employees' uh, point of view as well, and, and VCs. But yeah, we've we've grown tremendously in the last couple of years, and and I'll share more uh, in detail later. I think, like for me, when I first met you and I first really came across your LinkedIn profile, I had been so impressed by you know how you've been a product leader at different companies already, and then doing that before you started your own company. It wasn't just like a straight away you were a C level once, and then you go straight away to founding your own company. It was like a journey where you really built up your career. I think really solidified your experience in product and then jumped into starting your own company. But I think before all that, I want to get to know you a bit more. Like, what was your childhood like? Did you always want to be an entrepreneur? I actually don't. I, I think it's quite the contrary, actually. I grew up in India in a small town called uh, Dehradun. It's actually one of, one of the most beautiful and peaceful places in, in the whole of India. Not like the India you see on television. It is known for some of the best schools. So I, I was lucky to grow up and and went to one of the best schools in india at least in north india my father is he comes from the business background and my mom was a teacher but also comes from a business background but i think growing up seeing some of the struggles especially the family business right when there's like a couple of brothers working in a family environment and i didn't necessarily have a good sort of good experience with with having your own business and my mom definitely pushed me towards hey you know I want to get you out of this whole family business sort of nonsense. You should have a stable job and, you know, you should study and like get out of this family business. I didn't necessarily think I would be an entrepreneur, although I do have to say it is in my blood. So I'm not surprised when I, when I decided to start my own company and some of the lessons I learned from my father and just being around him 
growing up, seeing him do business and building relationships and customers and everything, I think have been truly in, instrumental in, in how we are building a company and, and the values and principles that we build our company, our company around. And when you were growing up, what were the kinds of things you were interested in? Does any of them point to where you are now? So I was interestingly, so one of the things I was interested in was cricket. <laughs> I think while it's obviously very different from what, what we're doing right now, I think being in a team environment and also playing a competitive sport has really helped me kind of shape up the kind of culture we are building. It's We are super competitive. We don't get scared easily. And at the same time, we also believe in teamwork and supporting each other. Everyone has a role to play, but it takes a village, like they say, right? to build a startup, to build a company. So it has definitely helped me. I, I was very good at maths. I was actually known in my my hometown, not just in my school, for for being one of the top like mathematics students. I, I ended up being seventh rank in my whole state in my uh, board exams, which is like the A-level A levels equivalent. So my mathematics uh, side was was pretty strong. And I think that, that definitely helps in how I think and how I structure things and structure deals, for example. And in, very interestingly, because my mom is an arts teacher, I was actually pretty good at arts. I don't know if I can say that anymore, but that has really helped me, I think, have a, have a very detailed eye for design. And while I'm not a designer, I work very closely with our, I've, I always work very closely with our designers. And I think that sort of combination of logical thinking, mathematics, and also design and arts has kind of helped me be a better product person for sure. And you said that you're really good at math and then interested in art. Which one did you like the most? Were you good at math because you felt like you needed to be good at it? Or were you truly interested in math? Like, where did your real interests lie? Yeah, I was I was just naturally good at maths. That's uh, sometimes a little bit cocky as well, because, oh, my God, I, I hope uh, my teacher is not listening to this <laughs> podcast. But um, we had this thing in school where everyone in class was going to our teacher for tuitions. And I was one of the only people who didn't go for those tuitions. And I felt sometimes targeted and I can like challenge my teacher himself in, in, in school. He would give me some tough mathematical questions and I would always answer them. And, <laughs> and I took a lot I took a lot of pride in that. It was one of the thing, few things that I was really, really good at. So I definitely enjoyed maths. I would do puzzles and I would do like I would sometimes get like, you know, mathematics books from my sister's class who was two years senior to me and I, I would still solve some problems for her as well. She was also a topper herself, but like she knows very well that I was much, much better than her and anyone else she knew when it came to maths. And, and that was definitely something that has been with me. I'm, I am where I am partly because of, I, I guess I was just lucky to be born this way. And then my my parents obviously uh, had, a, had a big role to play with that. Arts was just, uh, my mom would force me to do arts <laughs> and she would always say that you're good at arts, but I didn't really enjoy it, quite frankly. And uh, even now I would say like, our head of design would probably agree that my artistic sense is, is not there anymore. But like when it comes to UI, UX and designs and like user experiences, I think that's where it has definitely helped. My early experiences with my mom and, and arts has definitely helped me now. If I asked you like when you were finishing up high school, what you wanted to do in the future, what would you have answered? Oh, I wanted to be an Air Force pilot. Simple as that. <laughs> Air Force pilot. Yeah. And I almost uh, almost made it actually. I was in the top 100 People who got selected in India, I made it to the final like service selection boards and I was in the final 20 to 30, if, I'm, if I, I don't remember, it was like 18, 19 years ago. Uh, but 
what i didn't know back then which i now know is that i'm colorblind and it just so happens that to be an air force pilot you can't be colorblind you can be a commercial pilot but you can't be an air force pilot so uh, yeah i wanted to be an air force pilot i wanted to be a cricketer and ended up being an engineer as is the case with most indians by the way and i think yeah that ship sailed for me quite a long quite a long time ago so how did you get from taking those like exams going to university and getting to start your career totally outside of that like how did it all connect yeah look i think when you grow up in india and i think i'm i'm sure you would probably know of some indian friends who who can concur we we have this thing of like science versus commerce if you're if you're good at studies you stay in the science cohort if you're not good at studies they push you towards the commerce side uh which i think is something that can be controversial and i sometimes wish i had actually gone towards economic side maybe if i was in the commerce side but anyway so when you're doing science in india again like we we have those standard exams that you have to take the iits is what everyone wants to be part of then there's bits in other universities i actually never really even though i tried for them and i did decently well um because i wanted to be an air force pilot i think uh, i never really thought that far but because i ended up doing really well in my a levels i was in the top 7 in my state one of my friends who's actually now in singapore as well he went and talked to my parents actually and uh, applied behind my back for for the national university of singapore because uh, he believed that i could not only get in but get a scholarship which i eventually did get and that brought me to the national university of singapore i took computer engineering and uh, at that point of time it was really like I didn't really like have plans quite frankly I was just going with the flow couldn't be an air force pilot so went into the best engineering school I could go to which I didn't even apply for quite frankly uh, my friend did and I'm lucky to have friends like that and I got a scholarship luckily at NUS uh, studied in NUS didn't necessarily enjoy engineering because again in 2005 to 9 I think like computer engineering was more electrical and electronics than computer engineering we we did not write as much code as we should have so i started doing some internships and i i think eventually came to something mobile development which i really enjoyed and i think that was the big aha moment in my life where i genuinely started enjoying computer engineering i learned it during one of my internships actually at microsoft started building mobile apps and the first time i saw my app working was that big sort of <laughs> aha moment for me where i was not doing it to get grades in school or because my professor or my parents wanted it but because i wanted it when i first saw my 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 first app which was actually similar to friendster working i think since then it's been very clear i want to do i'm good at problem solving and that's what i want to do with technology and i think entrepreneurship also kind of happened because i realized that being big, being part of a big organization there's more you have to be really patient you have to play the political game as well which which is something i suck at i like to build solutions and i want to build them fast and i want to have impact and that kind of made me conclude very early uh, that startups was was a, was a place for me and and eventually building my own startup uh, became a became a dream i think yeah so you learned how to build at microsoft is that is that what you would say like for the first time with code you know the funny thing is i don't know if anyone actually taught me how to build i just always was a problem solver i just had that realization when i was in microsoft because i was not initially hired to code at microsoft i was hired to uh, be a intern 
in the life search team, which is now Bing, obviously, right? Google search engine. And my role was managing some of the developer relations and some of the companies we were working with. And I just happened to ask my manager back then, hey, maybe I can write some code. And uh, because I'm an engineer after all, and this is probably one of the best places to write code. And he was he was uh, nice enough to let me let me take a side project, which I did. And um, back then, by the way, App Store had not launched, so I was still building on .NET on on Windows Mobile. So I, I used to really enjoy carrying these uh, 20, 30 different devices and like show them off to my friends in, in university. Hey, look, I have these high-tech DoPod devices and Windows Mobile devices that you know I can just bring home and write applications for. And the first time I actually started building something, it was. I think that's when I started realizing just how much more there is to building solutions and the kind of problems you can solve for with the technology and how much power you have, you know, with, with certain developer tools out there. And uh, the first time I did it was that aha moment, like I said, I, I, like I said, like, I don't think necessarily someone has actually taught me and I did. Yeah. You could say I learned it at Microsoft, but it was, uh, it's just one of those realizations that you're good at building. You have that natural instinct. Of course, you have to be good at programming and everything. You have to be logical, but that's one of the things that just stuck, stuck with me that I like identifying problems and I've gotten better at identifying bigger and more impactful problems over over the years. But I've always been the natural problem solver. And I think that's what product management and entrepreneurship is. Why do you think you like solving problems so much? Do you think it's because you, you like math a lot before or is it something different? Hey, I don't know. <laughs> I <really> don't know. <laughs> It's just one of those things where, you know, even in life, when I've realized this very recently, by the way, I talk to my wife, talk to my friends quite a bit. Generally, when, you know, you, you're faced with a problem, a lot of people just get stuck on the problem and they, they get like, you know, some people are beaten by it. I generally, the very first thing that comes to my mind is a solution. It may not always be an elegant solution, may not always be the best solution, may not be the most feasible, but that's how my brain is wired. Uh, when faced with a problem, I think of a solution. I think that that probably goes back to my mom um, because she she herself was a living example of like any problem thrown your way, you just you just figure a solution out and you push through. So I think I would say it's probably by obviously having the DNA of of my parents, but also having seen it growing up how my mom tackled all the problems that can have ever come in her life. She's never complained. She's always, always fought. She still fights. And I think that's probably at some point of time manifested into how I became a problem solver as well. And I really enjoy doing that. And it, that's something that I've only recently come to realize that it's not something everyone, everyone naturally sort of feels comfortable with or not many people can just think of a solution and put into a, in, into a problematic situation. So I'm lucky um, and I have my mom to think for that. In terms of like your early career, what do you think were the aspects that helped you really build your career well? Were there things that you were lucky to be able to do or were there things in place that were really beneficial? Uh, yeah. So again, I think uh, I started my career as much as I tried to find a role uh, where I could build cool products. Again, when graduating in 2009 from NUS, they weren't, startups weren't a thing. Right. There was a startup back then called 10 Cube, um, started by my university seniors that had just been acquired or well, it, it got acquired later, but it was one of the few startups. No one wanted to work in a startup back then. Right. Startups couldn't pay well. People were like, why, why the hell would you take a, 
low salary job and uh, work in a company that's probably going to die next year so at that point of time i as much as i tried to find an exciting role i ended up being recruited by credit swiss and uh, i learned a lot about me at credit swiss that i'm not the right person to work in a large organization with like you know hierarchy processes so i think that really helped me shape a little bit of like i didn't necessarily know what i wanted to do but i i started learning what i didn't want to do and be part of these large organizations you know these approval loops waterfall sort of uh, methodologies where innovations can take years to to come out purely because of the number of people involved you know and even though i tried to do something over there in credit swiss i talked to the global cio and pitched to him that you know we could be building products for our users and we could do it fast and he did give us the approval to kind of like uh, get our own ipads and iimacs and and build something fast which was exciting but it started off exciting then it became again a hodgepodge of like 20 plus leaders getting involved uh, people asking for approvals presentations before actually building something and i think that was one of the biggest sort of learnings for me that that's something i don't enjoy doing i have a lot of respect for people who can build consensus and get things done in a large organization where there's just so many hurdles i'm not that person i like to just get shit done simple as that i like to just like i said to you earlier right when i see a problem i think of a solution and i want to go and build it and prove it that's the best way of proving by just solving the problem and i realized that large organizations was just not my my cup of tea and that's why uh, i went from the largest organization i've ever worked with credit swiss to then electronic arts to then a startup that was a series c startup with 100 people to then a smaller startup to then even a smaller startup and now starting my own my own company so yeah and then you also founded your own startup actually in between all of this right how did that start <laughs> yeah if you're talking about locofy locofy is actually not my first startup my first startup actually was while i was working for credit swiss uh and That's i tried to now right actually even before that was i share rides oh so while i was working for credit swiss i and i tried to do this innovation center or innovation corner in credit swiss and i just like got disappointed by how slow things are i thought hey you know what i have a lot of free time in the evenings and weekends and i like doing product development so i started building a, a taxi sharing app uh, again the problem i faced was that i was lazy i was uh, going uh, 20 kilometers a day uh, to my office uh and i started taking taxis a lot of the days you know you're young you you drink on on every day of the week wake up late and then you take a taxi because you're late at work so i started taking a lot of taxis more than i should have or could have afforded at that point of time i found some people to share a taxi with i was always like looking for solutions i was like i don't think i can take a bus no matter what happens so i need to just find people to reduce my my taxi fare and i found people way quickly within a week and then i just thought you know what i can't be the only person who's in that boat and i started building this taxi sharing app which i built uh and i also remember in singapore at that point of time in the travel and local category i think now it's probably changed there were two or three taxi apps one was i share rides which is what i built one was my taxi which is now grab and uh, there was another one uh, back then called uh, shared transport if i'm not wrong and uh, yeah like again uh, i chose the right problem but i think i just didn't know how i knew how to solve the problem to some extent but i didn't know how to really like capitalize on it and how to like build a company around it and it failed again back then no one was working on it i was working part time alone on this then i built a sports platform i learned some mis- from from those mistakes raised 30000 dollars actually and kept that company running for seven 
not seven years, sorry, four to five years, I would say 2011 to 2015. Again, bootstrapped it and did it as, as a part-time job. That was my way of learning how to build products. And that's why I got hired at Vigo. I was clear with them that I'm, I'm, I'm building this sports platform and I will not let that come in between my real full-time job, but I would love your support on that. And they were, they were nice enough to support me on that. So yeah, those two startups with each startup, I think I learned something, but one of the things I realized was not every problem is worth solving. And I think that's been the biggest lesson through these mistakes. First, taxi sharing. People would argue it's still not one of the biggest problems to solve for. Even though there's solutions out there, taxi sharing hasn't really taken off because it has some fundamental issues. Sports platform. Again, I built it because I was a passionate sports fan and I was in, in sports bars all the time watching and like faced with this trouble of not being able to book the, the, the right place at the right time. So I built a platform for it. Again, learned that may not necessarily be a, a big market or the right problem to solve. And that's why I decided to join Vigo, which is uh, the first startup I officially joined. And then Finexel and then Homage and now Locofy. And with each jump, I've had one of the biggest learnings that I've kind of like applied for is to not choose a problem that is not big enough, that is not like a real problem. How do you know when it's time to like end? For example, how do you know when it's time to move on and shut down the company? Uh, <laughs> well, you just know. Uh, you just I think know. You just know. Uh, that's a simple answer. There's this thing that people say, right? Like product market fit, like a lot of people see it in different ways. But I think Paul Graham said it. Uh, if you have product market fit, you know. And if you don't have it, you also know. <laughs> so I was running my startup for four or five years. One of my co-founders left. The other one left for MBA. The other one of them had to had to leave for personal reasons back to Australia. The fact that I'd been doing it, you know, on weekends, and it was great to learn how to build products, but wasn't necessarily going anywhere, right? I think we just knew that, yeah, we just had to part ways and and let the inevitable happen, basically, as 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 uh, painful as it is. With the companies, did you think that you let go and moved on at the right time, or do you think it was always like? You would say like, let's call it quits, but always a bit too late. With with my own companies, like in hindsight, I think I probably should have stopped the sports startup much earlier. <laughs> I I don't want to give up easily, and I kept on kept on going and kept on building it. But I think in hindsight, I should have probably closed it earlier. There's a lot of lessons, obviously, in hindsight, right? Like people learn. With the other startups that I joined, I think I was in Vigo for the right amount of time. I think a big part of Locofy today comes from our learnings at Vigo. My co-founder, my head of engineering, my new VP of engineering. We're all people we met at Vigo, by the way. And uh, Vigo's founder is our first angel investor. So Vigo is just perfect. I think I wouldn't change a thing about Vigo. Finexcel, I was there for a year. I have mixed feelings. I feel like I could have probably pushed more. And the other side of me says I shouldn't have pushed even more than a month. Like I probably should have like not kept on pushing for a year as well. But again, like, you know, it is what it is. Homage, I think I was there for the right time. I made it clear to the Homage CEO that that would be the last company that I, I joined. And I would try and stay as long as possible, as long as the company needs me and as long as it makes sense. But when I move on from Homage, it will be to start my own company. So I think, again, it was meant to be. Yeah. For other people who are like similar to you, executives at other companies, but want to build something in the future. What would you tell them as signs to like, when is it the right time to go and build your own company? Or are there even signs at all? Yeah, I don't think there's ever a right time or a wrong time. It's just one of those things. Like, even when we were starting Locofy, we weren't 100% sure. 
you will always have the doubts, right? Like there's no one or there's no Excel sheet or a formula or an expert who will say, now you're ready, do it. But of course, it comes down to certain signs, obviously, right? Like one of the signs that Soheb and I had was that we'd been working together now for like, you know, well, before before starting Loco5, we'd been working together for a long time. We we found a great team, um, you know, we found a great like co-founding team in, in a lot of ways, which a lot of people struggle with. We found, uh, you know, a team of people who kind of respected, uh, had mutual respect for each other, had a lot of complementary skills, can had a force sort of multiplier effect, you know, one plus one equal to 10 sort of a thing where both of us were working together somehow just produce magic, which we can't do without each other. And at the same time, we started feeling really strongly for certain pain, uh, painful sort of problems we've been part of. I think another sort of indicator for us was um, during COVID, we felt that there was a, a massive shift in the way the world works, right? And we felt that some of the best companies are actually built when these black swan events happen because things are never the same since COVID and, you know, remote work became a thing, productivity became a thing. Like, you know, uh, tech sort of startups started going ballooning in valuations. Engineers started getting more and more expensive, more and more difficult to, to, to find and retain. And we started feeling that pain ourselves and, and we just kind of knew that something had to be done about it. And, and we were in a, in a hot seat to do something about it. But so him and I didn't feel like we were ready to be co-founders. We were ready to be CEO or CTO. But that's why you have mentors, right? Like you should be, sometimes when you don't know you're ready, your mentors can push you. It could be a friend. It could be someone you work with. It could be your parents. It could be your life partners. I think we are very lucky that all of the, the people that I've mentioned pushed us towards it. My friends, they said, hey, dude, like you've been talking about it for a long time. Do it. We would love to back you. If there's anyone we know who's ready, it's you. And I was like, how can you be so sure if I'm not so sure, right? Uh, my mentor uh, at Vigo uh, originally met him to say, I will take a six months break, uh, a sabbatical and figure out, you know, I need to kind of learn how to build a, a company and, and prepare mentally. And uh, he just offered me an angel investment check straight away. And literally two days later, we started the company. Part of it was just knowing that our own mentor believes in us. So uh, I, I wouldn't say that there's any founders who say they just knew it uh, when they started the company. Today, as of as of today, I feel like, yeah, I should have probably started the company a year earlier. I, I mean, I made a big deal out of, will I know how to fundraise? Will I know how to be a CEO? And the, the only way to really test it is to actually do it. And there is no real good time. It's just some indications, some indicators, some like things around you that you should also not overthink uh, is one of our biggest lessons. We were probably overthinking it for more years than we should have. We should have probably started the company a couple of years before we before we did. Once you put in yourself in that situation, honestly, like instincts take over. You just get along and you just start, you know, building. And when you start building, I think that's where we are in our happy place. And now the company is at 30 people and we've never questioned whether we knew how to do fundraise and whether we'd be good CTOs and CPOs and CEOs, whatever it is. These are like doubts we can have sometimes before we start our own companies. So whether you're an exec or an intern, when you're starting your own company, you will never be 100% sure. You just have to do it. You have to take that plunge and like, that's the only way to find out. How did you pick your co-founder? What do you think is like the most important? If there is one thing that's the most important thing to look for in a co-founder? Is it a skill? Is it a personality? 
Yeah, I think it's it's a bit of everything, but first and foremost, it's it's trust. Ten years ago, when I started my my own company, I thought, like many young people think, you just go and do it with your best friend. And there's a lot of pros of doing it with your with your best friend, but that doesn't necessarily mean you know you'll form a good co-founding team. Good friends know, you know, the most important thing with good friends is that you've seen goods and bads together. You you've been around each other to see the negatives and the positives but that doesn't necessarily mean that you know you have complementary sort of skills although skills can be learned but like you know it also then depends on how adaptable and how flexible your co-founders are and their personalities with soheb i think i didn't really pick him he picked me or we picked each other i don't know what it is but we just knew it just felt natural soheb was the first engineer i ever hired in vigo and i had no idea that that guy was going to be my my co-founder in the first 3 to 6 months actually we probably had a little bit of like you know we were getting used to each other we didn't probably like each other's styles in the first 6 months again i'm talking about 2014 this was 10 years ago and then the first time we we really like built something together after that i think we started learning a little bit about each other started also learning that we both have a lot of complementary skills i tend to push him to do things that he doesn't think are possible and then I have a lot of faith in him and then he always always comes out stronger than even I thought he would. He's technically like one of the most gifted people I've ever met in my life, but more importantly he's one of the best human beings I know. He will always trust me to sometimes push him into something that, you know, is unknown in in a lot of ways. A lot of people can can feel uncomfortable when they are being pushed to come out of the comfort zone, but with Soheb I've always asked him to trust me to make the right decision and he's always just followed and uh, we did that for 10 years you know he he joined me at homage after vigo at vigo we built a lot of good products together uh, i asked him to do android he had never done android and he just like killed it completely then i asked him to take over the web team uh, my ceo asked me to take over the web team i did the same with soheb and it turned out to be one of the best decisions we ever made as risky as it was uh, then he joined me at homage without truly even understanding the space itself and then when i eventually asked him to well both of us had been talking about doing something for for a while i think midway through our careers but when it happened at lokofi initially i told him that you know i have 6 months to take a sabbatical that 6 months will give you some sort of cushion to think about it and to ease into this big risk of like starting our own company but then over a weekend we ended up raising a million dollars and then i i told him literally 48 hours after i told him that i'll talk to him in 6 months Two days later, I told him, "Hey, change of plans, dude. We've raised a million dollars. Let's do it tomorrow." And he did it. I think a lot of it is because we have a lot of faith in each other. We trust each other. We know that while we have complementary skills, which is obviously like you know needed, especially for the problem that we are solving, it's a highly technical problem. More importantly, we just both trusted each other to you know that I can see him by my side ten years down the line. no matter what like there's ups and downs in every company there's ups and downs in any relationship um i just know i i go to sleep very peacefully knowing that even if tomorrow shit hits the fan soheb's not leaving me and i think he can say the same and i think that's that's the most important thing needed in choosing your co-founders because skills can sometimes be picked up if you have the right attitude and personality but a lot of co-founders they probably haven't really gone through the pain together in their past and the first time things go south one of them decides to move on or maybe they didn't have that conversation early about like hey man it's look if, if things don't go well for a year do you have the financial sort of runway 
uh, for two years, three years, they don't align on some of those values as well. The kind of company they want to build, the kind of like things that are completely non-negotiable, the, the kind of culture we want to build as well, how we would support each other. One of them, let's say, wants to have a kid. The other one wants to move countries. Like these are conversations. So Abe and I have had over 10 years. So nothing was a surprise anymore. And I think it was, it was just, uh, yeah, I'm just lucky to have a, a co-founder like Soheb that I, I know people will come and go, but I, Soheb and I have had this conversation from day one. We will try and build a company where people don't leave. But if everyone leaves, Soheb and I can still build this ourselves. And that's the confidence we have in each other that whether someone comes and stays or not, doesn't matter. Both of us will keep on fighting till the end. And I think that's the kind of trust and the kind of confidence that a lot of founders I know don't have in their co-founders, which I feel like that's just something that was so fundamental to us that we both should have each other's backs and both should be empathetic towards each other and also support each other. And I think you mentioned that you're Indian and he's Pakistani and that actually comes as a surprise to a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, if I was in India, I don't know if I could have had a Pakistani co-founder. I'm not sure about it. India and Pakistan haven't had the most, I think, um, the best of relationships. We've been, we've had a very rocky history. And uh, growing up, I never really imagined I would, I would, you know, have a Pakistani co-founder. But again, like I think that's what when I moved to Singapore, I think it kind of opened our eyes towards not just you know our neighbors, Pakistan, but also different cultures within Asia from the rest of the world and. When I hired Soheb at Vigo, I didn't think once that he was Pakistani. And uh, when we started the company, never did that uh, you know, thought come to our minds until I think one of our angel investors mentioned that, hey, since you're Indian and he's Pakistani, have you ever thought you know, it could be a problem if you start a subsidiary in India or Pakistan in the future, blah, blah, blah. And we're like, wait, hold on. We never thought about it. So that's just who we are. Like We both have a lot of respect for each other. We are like family. We come from similar backgrounds. We have similar aspirations. And both of us are very clear that if we ever think about the fact that he's Pakistani and I'm Indian, maybe this could be an example of what can be done if we, we join hands and we, we work together rather than we keep getting stuck in the complicated history we have. So if this could be, a, I mean, of course, Lokofi has to be successful first, but I think Lokofi's success hopefully could be one of those examples of what can be done when we put our differences aside and, and we work together because at the end of the day fundamentally we are the same right like everyone's trying to build a safe and a happy future for their families for themselves and to be happy and and that's who we are and and that's how we try and kind of live and build the culture in the in the team as well so you mentioned that you want to build a team where nobody leaves and i'm sure that's really really hard in practice so what are the things that you put in place because i mean there are people who might come in looking to just have a job, right? And they don't really care if they're staying or not, or they have a certain goal and those goals might change. So how do you actually work around all that? Yeah, there's no easy answer for it. Like, you know, we we did uh, have this sort of pipe dream of building a company where, you know, we hire the right people and they stay. Because um, one of the things that, you know, that has been instrumental in us, you know, building great teams and products in the past 10 years has been that we haven't had as much attrition as most teams have. So Hebe and I, this is our third company together. Bilal, uh, who was my second engineer that I hired at Vigo, is now a head of engineering. Vigo's ex-CTO, uh, you know, has been a supporter as well. The founder has been an angel investor. Uh, people we worked with at HomeAge have now joined us as well. 
And increasingly, you know, we are seeing people that we even worked with 12, 13, 15 years ago are now interested in joining us. So we've always built a team where we basically make it absolutely clear before someone joins the goods and the bads, rather than paint a nice picture and then, you know, uh, things don't work out in the first three months. We are very, very clear that we are in a very intense team. We work super hard. Uh, we believe in launching fast and launching great products, and that doesn't come very easily. But at the same time, we also ensure they understand that, you know, we provide people relevant breaks. So if, let's say, you're pushing for a strong, for, for a crazy launch, and it takes three weekends, then the next week, we just give them off to kind of like, uh, you know, let them have that break and let them have their weekends back. We're very clear about these things because we feel that the start of any relationship, in this case, professional, should also be based on absolute truths where you admit to certain things that could be problems later on up front so that when people sign on, they, you know, they're not like up for any shocks. But having said that, like one of the things we've learned as well is that people's priorities can change, right? As the co-founders, our job is to make sure that the culture and the values are always transparent to the team and uh, they don't change too much either. Uh, of course, it can get better, but like we don't want to also change the culture of the company just for the sake of it as well. I, I know a lot of companies say that people you hire in the early days are not the right people when you are growing. And, and I can understand where they come from, but our methodology was always that, hey, if you upskill the right people at the right, right, right pace, and if you build the right relationships, and if you mentor them well, give them the right opportunities, why would you go through the pain of hiring someone new who has to learn everything from scratch where you don't know whether you're, you know, it will be a great relationship in the long run or not, whether you can trust them or not. Uh, why not just promote people from within and get them to upskill and be very transparent with them as well if they're not not doing so. So I think as much as we've done that and we, we will always continue doing that, one of the realizations for us is that people's priorities can change. When people join an early stage startup, for example, versus being in an early stage fast moving startup for two to three years, they can get burnt out and it may not necessarily mean that they've changed as a person, but they just need a, need a break or some people just don't see that the problem that you're solving is, is a problem they want to continue solving. Some people just want to like focus on family and, you know, living a more balanced uh, life as well, which uh, nothing wrong with that. It's just a priority. It's a personal preference, but uh, you can't just guarantee that people will be who they are all the time. And uh, as much as you can say the same for co-founders and, and for companies. So, yeah, on our side, what we can do is like be upfront when hiring people, be honest, be transparent, don't always paint a rosy picture. We talk more about how difficult it is to be part of Locofy and, and, and how difficult the problem that we're solving is and how competitive things can be. The more you, you grow, how difficult it becomes to grow. We were talking about this earlier as well, right? So we try and like not paint a very rosy picture so that people are, people know what's coming. And, you know, if you treat them like adults, they also can adapt, but not everyone can adapt. That's just the reality as much as we would like to believe. In those situations, we just try to make sure we, you know, offer our early team members a role with their change in priorities. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. We have to just part ways with respect and, and hope they come back at some point of time. And I think when you're looking for early team members, it's also a bit different from looking for a co-founder. What are the signs that this person is the right person for the team? Is it looking for people that you can work with and treat as friends? Is it people who 
have a certain energy like what is it i think energy and uh, how useful one can be and and their attitude are actually first uh, founding member was our intern so we so hey when i started the company again it was such a big like it, it happened so quickly that we weren't necessarily like ready and uh, we were just thinking about how do we start building and and one of our ex interns pinged us saying hey i'm graduating can i come back at home age and we said yeah i mean i'm not at home age anymore but i can happily write a recommendation letter i'm sure they'll be happy to have you uh, and she said no i want to work with you and uh, at that point of time we were like oh okay there's this intern who comes from a design background but has built products before she started a, she tried to start her own company in university uh, so which means she has that sort of entrepreneur spirit she won't just come in and say this is my job i will do it 9 to 6 and and that's it so we thought we through with her we can find someone who can uh, you know do designs help us on the product side of things but also wear multiple hats and not sort of come in expecting perks and processes and stuff she knew that i mean by then we didn't have, even have a website right we were just so him and me and we had a uh, just close our uh, close to million dollars and we had a bank account and that's it so put yourself in those shoes right as an intern you're just graduating and uh, you want to be part of this team i mean that already says everything we want to know about that person uh, rather than taking a higher paying job um with more sort of structure cushion mentorship she wanted to be part of uh, a company that didn't even have a website by back then we didn't have an office we we just saw him and me basically so i think mindset and and attitude plays a big role and i think in terms of uh skills itself i think it's skills can be taught and i think especially for young people it really comes down to are they smart are they sharp can they learn new things do they even want to learn new things how fast can they learn those things and every time let's say every 3 months the company needs um uh, someone to put their hands up and say hey we now need to figure out community we now need to figure out like you know content we now need to figure out marketing if the answer from the team is always let's hire someone then you hire the wrong people wrong people the answer should always be look look let me do let me figure this out i haven't done this before at least we can get started while we look for someone in the long run so that's the kind of people we normally bring in uh they have to be sharp because sometimes people can be open to trying new things but they're just not sharp this is the reality in a tech startup it doesn't work honestly but yeah bringing people who have the right sort of uh, expectations right mindset right attitude they are sharp um and they are flexible in terms of don't care about roles or titles and they care more about the impact the problem we are trying to solve those are the kind of people we ideally want to bring in in the early stages then since you said skills can be learned i'm sure there have been people with difficulty trying out new things in your team so how do you help out team members who are trying something new launching something but are having difficulty do you guide them when do you know to switch them over to another role if ever yeah yeah i think that's a that's a valid question and and we we face that sort of problem as well ourselves we've hired like people in product management and realized that rather than like you know expecting them to understand the problem that we are we are solving and like really start building new products and new features we've realized at times that you know if their base is not strong in understanding what this space is about how front end engineering works for example how the design process works then it's better to then send them into a role where they can first build a strong backbone so as an example we hired someone in the product team we realized that we were probably pushing her a bit too early into building solutions 
And we realized that maybe if she spends time three months in QA, quality assurance, right, where she doesn't have the pressure of making decisions, but ensuring that we are building the right product and, and launching the right product. When you test something again and again, it just makes you well-informed. It gives you more confidence about the product itself without having to take that stress of like making decisions without necessarily understanding anything properly. So I think lucky that we we were able to at least tackle that situation and, and, and figure out a, a way for our product manager to first have the flexibility and the, and the space to go and learn and then come back into product management. But that's not always, it's easier said than none, right? It's not always possible. If you've just hired someone that comes with a expensive price tag and, uh, you know, you hired someone to come in and let's say do um, marketing or community and they're not able to do that in the first couple of months, no matter how well you interviewed them, no matter how well your interview process was, which again in startups is not like a three weeks process. It's like you talk to the co-founders and we take a leap of faith as much as the candidate takes a leap of, leap of faith. And sometimes it doesn't work out. Not always do we have the luxury of saying, hey, you know what? Why don't you move to another role? Because if, for example, if you hired an expensive product manager and you're putting him into QA for that price tag, it doesn't make any sense as a startup, right? So uh, it's not always possible. And in those situations, I think it's always best to just course correct, uh, admit that you made a mistake, have a very clear conversation with the team member, offer them some options and and. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. There's, you don't have the luxury as a startup to to make an expensive mistake and to live with it for too long. And on building Localify, I think he said that you don't want to paint a rosy picture of what things look like. And I think a lot of people listening always see all the positives of building setup, like all the fundraises, all the launches. But for you, what's top of mind that you can share that are actual challenge that, challenges that you have? Yeah. I mean, fundraisers, if if lucky once in two years, once in 18 months, whatever it is, for three days, you feel like you're on the top of the world because everyone's talking about you. But then that that's it, right? Like for the remaining 362 days a year, that fundraise gives you a little bit of relief, especially in our case. Like we we always ensure our team knows about the healthy runway we have, that they don't have to worry about losing their jobs, no matter what's happening around us, for example, because we have a runway and uh, that's one of the biggest things we, we talk about as much as we talk about the difficulties and all those things we also tell them just focus on the job get it done don't worry about all the distraction around you but i mean yeah building a startup is is not just about fundraise right it's about solving a problem that most people don't think you can solve or most people don't even think are problems or most people uh, don't think you are the right person to solve that problem and usually there's always this question of, hey, what if a bigger company who has more resources than you, more people than you, uh, more distribution than you, more money than you, uh, why would they not be able to do it before you? You're just three people, for example, right? So I think it's just realizing that in a startup, you are you're, the odds are stacked against you from day one. Uh, if it was such an obvious problem you were solving, and it was so easy that, oh, whoever does it first just wins, then everyone would be jumping on that problem or solution, right? Like by definition, startups are are there. Like most startup ideas are kind of offering a contrarian view to most what most people don't believe in, right? We, for example, said two years ago that, hey, the work that front-end engineers are doing, a big portion of the work that front-end engineers do can be automated. And uh, in the future, front-end engineering will not just be about doing or writing code the way people write today. 
80% of it will be automated and front-end engineers will be able to move much faster. Uh, a lot of people didn't believe that, uh, including including engineers themselves. So how do you then like stay motivated to solve that problem, knowing you have three people or four people in the team, knowing you only have like, let's say, half a million dollars in your bank account, as opposed to, you know, the larger companies out there, potentially, you know, Microsofts of the world and the Figmas of the world. Why can't they build it before and better than you? I think that's where we don't like to paint a rosy picture. Building a startup is is not about playing table tennis or enjoying, uh, you know, like a, a cafe style office. It's really about solving a tough problem and solving it faster than anyone else. One of the fir- one of the only advantages that you have working in a startup is that your decision making and your speed at which you are building will be like will be and should be 10x faster than the others who can solve the same problem but are not solving it because they're not able to make you know like to agree on that or they're just slow because they have 100 people working on it and they all come with their own overheads on solving that problem so in a startup like in in locofi especially we are very clear with everyone we are going to work fast even if we have 30 people today as opposed to five or six people in the early days getting 30 people doesn't mean we slow down that now the same job will be done by two people instead of one. It just means we'll be moving even faster towards solving the problem we have to solve. And I think that's where, yeah, it's never easy because it really comes down to the decisions you're making with the limited resources you have, how fast you're building. If you're building fast, then there's always this counter argument of are we building quality? And then asking your team that, hey, we are one of those few teams that does quality and speed at the same time, uh, as difficult as that could be. It's easy to say, and you know, not everyone understands it, quite frankly. So how do you then find the right people to kind of like come in, work twice as hard, work fast, take a lower salary, work in a more stressful job, as opposed to, you know, being in a larger company that probably has more resources, you can have a better balance. I think that's why I think it's very important to not paint a rosy picture because you will attract the wrong kind of people. People who come in for a rosy picture also leave for a rosy picture. And we always believe that when we are very open about the difficulties of building a startup, and especially at Locofi, the problem that we're trying to solve, how everything is stacked against us. But we also share why we think we can solve this problem better than anyone else. And we leave it to the candidate whether you want to, are you brave enough to be part of this? Are you crazy enough to think you can come in and um, increase our chances of winning? When you When you bring in people like that, I think you have a much higher likelihood that they're not going to just change their mind in six months or nine months. Versus you paint a rosy picture and then they come in and they have a huge culture shock of how fast you're moving and how um, much more than their job description than they actually have to do and how we're putting in some weekends and late nights at times. We have users in 196 countries. We are supporting each one of them. Roughly 24-7, we are answering questions. So it's stuff like that that I think we are better off just being open and sharing how difficult it is to build companies. And that's where we also get our angel investors actually to come in and share their experiences because they have built companies that are now, you know, globally known. Sometimes it's just better to get it, to get someone who has been in that, been there, done that, to come in and share how difficult it is to 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 build a, a, a startup or to build or to solve a, a problem that is, you know, like worth billions. When you bring on somebody to your team, how do you keep everybody motivated to move really fast? I think a lot of people talk about moving fast in the company, but how do you actually keep that velocity? Are there things that you keep in place? Or do you have any ways of working that 
you guys enforce? Yeah. So one of the things we, I mean, in, in the case of, I think at source itself, we bring people who understand that in the first place, right? Like who've portrayed that to some extent, leaders, especially uh, with young people, we are just like clear about like, you know, making sure that they're hundred percent sure about what they're joining and they're aware they have all the information to make that decision. But uh, on a operation level, like, you know, when we build products, for example, we don't do estimations. Uh, if we design something and give it to engineers, there's this old school way of like, oh, this could take me two hours, but let me put three hours in that Excel sheet. And then then that adds up and people keep adding buffers after buffers. As I say, estimation is an art. Our way of believing has been for the last 10 years, not just at Locofy, that when you're building something crazy, you go with a t-shirt estimate and you just do everything possible to make it happen. And then you learn, basically, right? Uh, so one of the things we always avoid doing, especially as the team gets bigger, is to not do unnecessary estimations and buffers. We just set a, a deadline and sometimes we get it wrong. We we are also very open and reasonable uh, when we realize we've made a mistake. And in the other times, we just tell the team that, hey, you know what, let's suck it up. Let's get it done. Because not every... If we think we can do something in three months, then other startups can also do it in three months. Then what is really our competitive advantage? Other than the fact that we might be building better, but we also want to build faster. So we, at the top itself, we decide some of the crazy timelines and crazy deadlines, and we just hire people who look at that and say, yeah, it's not possible. I shouldn't be in this team. Or you know what? It's going to be impossible. It's a joke that we think we can do this in in 10 days, but... We believe in the team and we've hired a team that can get it done. Sometimes people just have to trust that their mentors believe in them more than them. And they just, we just go with it. Simple as that. Less discussion, more doing. And if we don't, then we don't. Some, some of the timelines can be, uh, can be a little flexible. Some of them are not. Like if we have a product hunt launch on the 15th of May and we want to launch a feature before that, then you know what? If it takes us 20 hours a day, seven days a week, then we have to get it done. But if some launches, there's some flexibility, then we also make sure that the team doesn't get uh, drained out uh, because of that. And we generally always choose the most aggressive estimate. We don't go with the, well, there's an aggressive estimate, there's an easy estimate, and there's something in between. We just go with the aggressive estimate always. And then something outside of your work at Locofi, I think you also are an angel investor. How do you think about angel investing? I'm sure you're not there to look for huge returns. So what, what is your thinking behind that? And how do you act as an angel investor? Uh, I think for me, angel investments is purely uh, tying together a couple of things. Number one, I think I mentioned to you earlier, I've gotten better over the years at identifying problems before most people do or seeing a contrarian view towards how things might change in the next five to 10 years before most people do or putting my money where my mouth is basically, right? Like a lot of people can predict, but angel investment, in my opinion, is the is the only way to putting, you know, your or one of the few ways for people like us to put our money where our mouth is, right? Uh, one of the things I've realized is ideas and like, you know, as long as you're working in a, in a big market, it really comes down to the team. And I've had the, um, I've been lucky to know some of the best builders in the region in the last 10 years. They often come to me for advice and I go to them for advice. And I think angel investment was just our way of supporting each other, not necessarily looking for long-term returns, but also I think more about building this network of people that we can genuinely learn from. I think I heard Will Smith, I think in one of his um, interviews a long time ago saying that there is not one problem in the world that is like new. Someone in the world has had that, has been through that problem and has written about it or has spoken about it. You just have to read more and you just have to like ask for people. 
And I think that truly applies over here as well, because when you're starting a company, oh my God, you will need help, right? Whether it's how do I structure my team? Who do I hire? Whether I should raise? How do I raise? To what kind of people I should bring in? What decisions I make upfront that could be really costly and could, you know, like either be the reason why your company scales fast or just like never sees the the, uh, the light at the end of the tunnel. You need people who have been through those mistakes, uh, to those problems rather, and have either made mistakes or made decisions that, you know, that truly set them apart. And uh, that's why I think for me, angel investments are my way of building a network of people that I can talk to, I can offer them some help on the product side or through my own experiences, but also learn from them. And also to broaden my own sort of uh, way of looking at the world. We we tend to be so like married to the problem that we are are solving. You know, Soheb and I think about the low-code space and uh, the design-to-code space, the developer tool space now 95% of our times. Being an angel investor in other companies gives us like a good sort of way to like still do problem solving and learn outside of the developer tool space and learn from other entrepreneurs and also just like, you know, stay away from, from your 24 uh, seven job uh, once in a while. So yeah, angel investments is just a matter of like, you know, there are certain people that we know will do well, even if we don't understand that problem set, we know it's a problem and we know that this team is super passionate and super capable it's our way of getting involved and helping out and you might have a return, but most angel investors I know don't necessarily do this keeping like a, oh, in 10 years, I have to triple my money or oh, sorry, 10x my money. They're just doing it to learn. Uh, they're investing in them, themselves through investing in others. And, you know, being a founder, you know, before and now and have worked in senior positions at Startup C4, what are sort of personal costs that you have to take throughout your career, especially now as a founder? Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, like time is uh, like where you spend your time. Work-life balance, for example, is, is definitely something that takes a hit, right? Like anyone starting their own company will tell you that work-life balance is not necessarily achievable, but what we have is more work-life integration, right? Like we're building a remote company now. I walk my dog at 4 PM. I take a break when I need to. Sometimes I'm like not feeling productive and I just take a quick power nap. These are things that I feel I have that a lot of my friends don't have. You know, people that have these work-life balance jobs, they can't necessarily make their own decisions all the time. It depends on someone missing a friend's wedding, for example, things like that. I Actually, funny enough, I can do it now more being a co-founder than uh, when I was working for someone. Those are really? not my own decisions. Yeah. So... How you spend your time to some extent, I think you have to be realistic that you get back your time to decide to make those decisions because, you know, you're building your own company. If you decide to go uh, away for an hour versus a week or a weekend, you can make those calls yourself because you will make the right decisions for your own company. That's just as simple as that. So for me, that work-life integration and the control over my own time is, is something I see as a pro, but a lot of founders may not necessarily see it that way right like startups require you to give it your everything even when you're not working you're working so i think the personal costs sometimes can be especially in the moments when you're having doubts because everyone has that sort of imposter syndrome it's very natural to think have i made the right call should i have just stayed in credit suisse although maybe credit suisse is the wrong company to talk about right now (laughs) 
yeah, I have me, I have these friends who are buying houses and like, you know, they are settling in and like, you know, they're already thinking about buying a second or third house and all my investments are right now in like startups, early stage startups, the riskiest investments ever. They may or may not ever materialize. And now I'm starting my own company again, taking a literally a graduate salary. You can have those, um, I mean, you could see them as a cost, but I think it really comes down to your own mindset. I've, for Soheb and I, we've never ever been happier. As hard as we are working and as <clears throat> difficult decisions that we are making on a daily basis, I think starting our own company is something that we've always talked about. And now, if anything, we believe we will. this is what we are going to do for the rest of our lives, solving problems and and um, building companies our own way. We, we can't complain anymore about like how a company should be built. We have that power now and the control now to do it our way. Whereas working for someone else, you will always, no matter how senior you are, you will always have that question or or that thought of like, oh, this is not the culture I would want to build, but it is what it is. I just have to live with it. Whereas now when we're building our own company, at least we never sit down and think about, oh, why am I working in a company that doesn't value X, Y, Z? We are building that company now ourselves. And, and I think that's something only founders can experience, quite frankly. And I guess like to close, I want to ask you the same question I ask everybody I speak to for the podcast. And that's, Outside of work, what's one thing you want to achieve in your personal life? It doesn't have to be something you achieve this month, this year, or even in the next five years. But what's top of mind when I ask you, um, what's something you want to achieve in your personal life? Um, I think it's a bit, may sound a bit cheesy, quite frankly, but I do want to make sure that in my personal life, like once I've, let's say, hit some of those financial independence goals that I have kept in mind like once i've gotten to a stage where i don't have to always think about providing for my family for building a future for my for my kids parents whatever it is and once i'm kind of like let's say comfortably out of that that loop that 90% of the world is never gets out of i do want to you know solve a problem that is not necessarily seen as a investable problem i don't know what it is but i do feel like you know where I come from, where Soheb comes from, there's a lot of problems that entrepreneurs are not looking at and VCs are not looking at, but they are problems nonetheless. And they are problems that are close to our hearts. They could potentially be classified as social enterprises today. Uh, we are, Soheb and I are not in the position today to, to, to be running, to be solving a problem like that. But I, I would love to believe that Soheb and I would solve a problem which is close to our where we come from, who we are, whether it's like, you know, kids, I mean, I was lucky to be, to be, I guess, like have, have parents who pushed me and also to have uh, be born with mathematics, for example, like we said earlier, that brought me to Singapore on a scholarship. But I know a lot of kids who don't have the means, even if they are smart and, you know, they just don't have the means to go to the best universities or to make some of the decisions that we've been lucky enough to make now. And I would love to go back and do something about it. At the moment, I do it through advising companies like uh, you know, that are probably solving that problem or through investing in, in, in someone. But I would love to think that I could just find people like me who have the talent, have the potential, but don't necessarily have the means to, to get their families out of a certain situation. And I, I don't know what that problem is, but I will figure it out when the time is right. I'll be waiting. <laughs> Maybe we will still have time to cover it. <laughs> I hope I can do that, honestly, because I, who doesn't want to do something, you know, beyond just making a billion dollar company, but not a lot of people can can do that full time. So I would love to be in that position, maybe five, 10 years on the line. 
So from chasing a billion dollar company to chasing maybe a multi-million person impact. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Something that is not just about, you know, like solving a problem where you can put a dollar term next to it. Well, thank you so much for sharing everything, honey. I had a, such a great conversation and I learned so much. Yeah, same here, Amanda. Uh, it's like, I think conversations like this are also a, a good reminder to us as well at times on why we are doing what we are doing and it sets things into perspective. We don't always verbalize these things. So I, I thank you for, for uh, helping me do that. Thank you.